Okay, grab your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, um, verses 3 through the 20. So we're up to in our journey as a church through Ephesians, looking at God's plan and it was a united walk. Now before we start, let's start with a little bit of a straw poll. Um, who here enjoys summer holidays? Yeah, these days like this should remind you of it. I think I love summer holidays because it's a time of change. By the end of our last summer holidays, um, I had a slight tan going on, um, I'd lost a bit of weight, hadn't had coffee for a few weeks in succession, I was running, I was jogging each night, I was walking my dog, living a very, um, a generally pretty healthy existence by my standards. Um, the only problem with summer holidays is that sadly they don't last forever, do they? And it's about this time of year that if you're anything like me, you look in the mirror and you ask that question, what happened? The tan's been replaced with a pasty white complexion. The coffee is back in abundance. The running is no more. And my dog's looking at me longingly because it hasn't been walked since about (laughs) mid-February. We can all make temporary adjustments, can't we? But a permanent and lasting change is something different altogether. Now, in the first 20 verses of Ephesians 5, Paul's building on the point which he's been making and which Cam has been walking us through in chapter 4. That point was where we place our faith in Jesus, there's a permanent and forever eternal change that occurs in our hearts. It's not just a temporary adjustment. The old self has now gone and the new self has come. Our old unsaved way of life has been put to death once and for all, a permanent and eternal change. And a new life and relationship with God begins in the hearts of all those who surrender to Jesus. And that same idea comes through in today's section, in chapter 5, but it uses a different analogy. Rather than old self and new self, we hear about these terms of darkness and light. This is more than, when we refer to darkness and light, we're talking about more than a temporary adjustment. It's referring to a permanent, eternally secure change that occurs in the hearts of those who place their faith in Jesus and experience the wonder of his salvation for themselves. And Paul then makes the point that this permanent and eternal change, this salvation, needs to be evident in our walk. We can't, change, we can't claim that a change has occurred in our heart, but then live as though nothing is different. For God's plan and purpose for his salvation was that it would flow out and be evident in then the way that we live. Because salvation isn't just a gift that's intended to be received. It is that but it's also a gift that was always intended to be lived. And Paul uses the term of walk to describe the way that we're living. And that idea or that word walk comes up a number of times in chapters 4 through to 6. And so I've divided up today's passage along that same idea. I think in verses 3 to 6, you hear this idea of an impure walk, how sexual immorality has no place amongst God's people. Then in verses 7 to 14, we read about a changed walk, about how our walk is to bear fruit and be a witness in the lives of those around us. And then lastly, in the final section, we read about a glorifying walk, the new walk that we are called to live in Christ. And so as we journey through these sections, let's see how they speak in this idea about how our salvation is to be evident in the way that we live in our walk. Now, the first of those is an impure walk. And I have to flag up front that this section starts a little bit heavy and confronting. Um, But we're crazy if we're not willing to go there as a church. 
I remember chatting with Cam briefly after small group one night and we were talking about chapter 4 and chapter 5 and how they sit together and I think Cam made the joke, I feel like I got all the nice fluffy stuff and you get all the bad stuff. And in some respects this is the bad stuff and it can be perceived that way but we're crazy if we don't talk about it and are willing to go there openly as a church because it's a huge issue, the area of impurity and sexual immorality. See, I think typically the churches have the view that we're all good people So we don't need to talk about those dirty sins of sexual morality. They don't have anything to do with us. We're good people, right? But we have that mindset at our own peril. You know, now it starts in primary school, doesn't it? With the messaging and the talk that's around the schoolyard. It develops in high school as people's sexuality and access to sexual images and activities increases all the more and becomes more of an, an, an experimental concept almost. There's so much confusion around it and then becomes a force that's to be reckoned with from there in the lives of all of us, whether Christian or non-Christian. You just need to take the statistics around pornography, just an example of this area, and it's quite startling. More than 70% of men, this was taken a number of years ago, so I reckon the statistics will be even higher now. 70% of men between the age 18 to 34 visit a pornographic site in a typical month. I'm sure that statistic's high, because it was quite an old poll that I was seeing there. And in case we're thinking it's just a male and a non-Christian thing, they actually took a poll of female readers of a Christian online newsletter. And of the people that were taken in that poll, again, this was a number of years ago, 34% admitted to intentionally seeking out to access pornographic material. It's estimated that 25% of people with internet access at work, which is pretty much everyone, would seek to access pornography during those hours. Now, you can go on and on with these statistics, and that's not the point of today's talk. The point is that this area, the broader area of impurity and sexual morality is huge, and it's destructive, and it's dangerous, and it's only going to be bigger and bigger, and we don't talk about it at our own risk and peril because of that. We've got to be willing to go there as a church because if we write it off as irrelevant, we do so at our own risk. But what does Ephesians 5 say about it? Well, I'm just going to read verses 3 to 6 of chapter 5. Feel free to read along if you've got the Bibles in front of you, and I encourage you to get the text in front of you this um, this morning because we will be working through it fairly methodically um, together as a church. I'm going to read from verse 3 of chapter 5. It says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity or foolish or crude talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. It's a heavy text. Now let's remember the the context into which this letter was being written in the Ephesian church. Ephesus was a city that was filled with idol worship. And that idol worship was often linked with um, explicit forms of sexual activity or experimentation. Brothels and access to sex was just part of life in Ephesus. Indeed, it was almost like a destination town for those sorts of things. But Paul is now writing to the church that has been planted in Ephesus and saying, you ought to be different. 
You've been called out of that way of life. In fact, he says amongst you, there should not even be a hint of these things. It shouldn't even be named amongst you at all. You've been called to a different walk. So what is sexual immorality? And why is it so... um, Why is it viewed this way in God's eyes? Well, sexual immorality is essentially any form of sexual activity or experimentation outside the sacred covenant of marriage. It's engaging in these activities in a way which is contrary to God's intention that it occur between a man and a woman within the confines of a marriage relationship. But before we're too quick now just to discuss dismiss that conduct based on that definition and say, look, that's okay, I'm all right on that front. Let's remember the concept of sexual immorality um, is not just about the act of intercourse, but it reaches much deeper into our hearts. It can be present in what we watch. It can be present in what we expose ourselves to. It can be present in what we say and who we say it to. And we see this emphasized by Jesus in Matthew 5:28, when he says, He who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. It starts in the heart. It starts with a thought. It moves to a comment or a conversation. It's so prevalent amongst our technology. And it builds momentum from there as it seeps its way into grab hold of our life and you can see it in today's text it starts talking generally about immorality and impurity and then it moves to focusing on our foolish talk or crude joking because it rarely sexual immorality it it often starts with the seemingly innocent the words or the conversations but rarely does it stay there Those thoughts become words, those words become decisions, those decisions become actions, and those actions can grab hold of our life. Now, why is it an issue in God's eyes? Well, God established marriage and assigned it as a safe and sacred place for these kinds of activities between a man and a woman. So when we go outside of that framework, we are rejecting God's design and purpose for his people. In 1 Corinthians 6, it also says that this category of sins is of a different nature. It's against our body itself, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's been indwelled by the presence of God. And so these types of sins, in a way, defile that temple in which he has indwelled. But putting all that to one side, sexual sins are sins that destroys families and relationships. They violate the exclusive claims of our current or future spouses. And they grab hold of our life and they drag us away from God. That's why this is a key area that Satan uses to capitalize on our natural desires in a way that so easily leaves us feeling hostage or addicted or feeling powerless or guilt-ridden to do anything about it. And when you first read verses 5 or 6, it feels like the the situation gets even worse, doesn't it? Where it says that people who engage in this have no place in God's kingdom, and because of these things, the wrath of God will be on the sons of disobedience or the people who engage in it. Now, don't, don't read all this, though, into thinking that God is opposed to all forms of sexual activity. That's not the message. He created it. 
but he created it as an incredibly intimate expression of love between a husband and a wife. In that context, it's an absolute blessing. It's a blessing. But outside of it, it is addictive, it's dangerous, it's harmful, and it's damaging for our relationships with others and, of course, our relationship with God. And when you read these verses, Paul leaves us in no doubt of God's hatred towards these forms of impurity in our life. But his intention and heart, I know this is heavy, right? But the intention and heart of Paul is not to leave us in a place of hopelessness and despair. His intention is not to strike fear into our hearts about these things and leave us in a place of feeling guilty. His intention is actually to encourage because in Christ we have hope. In verses 7 and 8, it says, Therefore, do not partner with them. Do not engage with these like everyone else around you is in Ephesus. It says, You're different. Don't partner with what everyone else is doing. Because for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Paul urges the church in Ephesus to not get involved in this stuff because they were darkness. But now they are different. They have been changed. They have been brought into the light. They were defined by their sin and they were controlled. They were blind to what they were doing. But he said, you church, you who have placed your faith in Jesus, you have been called out of this and you have been changed from the inside out. What does it mean now that we are a people who are defined by light rather than darkness? What does that mean? Well, I think we see the answer to that in John 8 verse 12 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus' intention is to be the light that makes us the light. Jesus' intention is to move in and replace the place that sin had in our life, to replace that with himself, the light. Jesus comes in and moves us from darkness to light. He gives us a new identity and a new standing and a new relationship with God. Jesus is the light that changes us from darkness to light. And this means that the place in our hearts, which can previously might be consumed with all forms of immorality or impurity or idolatry, is now to be filled with the person Jesus Christ. Because now, in him, we have a hope that we did not have before. Amen? In him, we have a power which we did not have before. In him, we have discernment that we did not have before. And as a result, Paul says, these sins no longer need to be our master. Because we are light in the Lord. The truth here you can see ringing through this section is that God hates an impure walk, but he offers deliverance through Jesus. He hates an impure walk. He does. He can't tolerate that sin, but he offers deliverance from it through Jesus. And he says, now, church in Ephesus, you have experienced that deliverance through the person Jesus Christ. Now you're different. How might these struggles with sexual immorality or impurity be relevant to you? It might be relevant to your conversations. It might be relevant to what you're exposing yourself to. It might be relevant through your use of technology. It might be relevant 
in an unhealthy relationship that may have progressed beyond where it should. When we walk these battles on our own, we lose. We're to walk them as a community. And we've got a pastoral team, we've got leaders here who want to journey with people in this struggle. Because when we walk it on our own, we lose. But there is victory to be found when we walk it in light. When we walk it with Jesus in our heart, experience the reality of his love and grace. We need to be constantly asking ourselves how we might therefore need to reach out to receive the life-giving power that Christ offers to deliver us from any areas of impurity in our life. Now, having said that, Paul then continues with this idea as he looks at a changed walk. He continues this idea of light, that is. And in verse 8, he introduces an imperative. He says, now you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. In other words, now that you are children of light, live as children of light. And what we see in verses 7 to 14 is that walking as, children, walking as children of light involves shining the light and love of Jesus into the lives of those around us. In verse 9, we see that first and foremost, if Jesus is determining our walk, then it will result in fruit. In verse 9, it talks about the fruit of light being all that is good and right and true. And this contrasts with what is described later on as the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, we have a lime tree in our front yard. And I'm not great with plants by any stretch of an imagination, but I'm a massive fan of our lime tree. I love it. Now, last year, I wasn't sure what was going on because for whatever reason, there were no limes. So despite my tender loving care, which wasn't very much... I would water it, I cared for it occasionally, I did whatever, um, made no difference. For whatever reason, there were no limes on this tree. Then in all my wisdom, it occurred to me that beside that lime tree was another half-dead tree. And the half-dead tree kept moving and encroaching on the lime tree. So one day, in a burst of enthusiasm that's uncharacteristic of me, I went to the garage, pulled out the spade, and the half-dead tree became a fully dead tree and got pulled out from the front yard to give the lime trees some space. Praise God, we have limes this year. <laughs> There's limes everywhere. The tree's full of limes. Now, when Jesus rules our heart, he wants to produce fruit. He wants to produce fruit in the form of a life and living in a way of life that is good and right and true. But it's so easy for our lives to get completely choked up by sin. And that might be impurity, but it might be all sorts of sin. It might be pride or greed or idolatry or envy or all these things which are fundamentally opposed to God. They choke up our life and they stop it from bearing that fruit. It's anything that effectively removes God from the center of our life and replaces it with our own wants and our own desires and our own needs. But God wants to work in our hearts to weed out all those things so he can start producing fruit in the form of a life that is good and right and true and fitting for God's people, fitting for children of light. But we need to remember the purpose of this fruit because the purpose isn't so that we all then come across as people who have got everything together. The purpose is not so we look like we've got everything in life sorted out. The purpose is so that the light and love of Jesus might shine out into the lives of those around us. 
keep accidentally clicking my iPad, so I'll just get rid of it. I think you gathered the three points that are on there. They're not going to change. In verses 11 to 14, um, it describes about walking as children of light. And it talks about it not just as abstaining from the unfruitful works of darkness, but actually exposing them. Exposing those secret sins that are buried in the hearts of people that are only known as between us and God. Like turning on a light in a dark room suddenly exposes everything that's going on in that room, doesn't it? You suddenly see it for what it really is. In the same way, our lives are meant to be like switching on a light that exposes people and their need for Jesus Christ. Now, with today's culture of you do you, this kind of cuts across the grain a bit because... Today's culture will say it's really just about you. You just be who you are, use what you have to get what you want. Be who you are, use what you have to get what you want. That's really what you should be focused on. Don't worry about other people because they'll, they'll be doing them. Okay? They've got their own lives going on. It's just you just focus on what's important for you. But what we see in these verses is that our salvation isn't just for us. It's actually not about us at all. Our salvation changes us, but it's then intended to overflow and impact on the lives of those around us. And there's a good reason for that, right? Because life without Jesus is a life without hope. Life without Jesus is a life lived in darkness, blinded to the effect and the consequences of sin. A life lived without Jesus is a life lived, as it talked about in verses 5 and 6, under the wrath of God. So Paul is turning to the church and saying, you are the light. You have been saved by grace through the work of Jesus on the cross who died the death for our sins that we could not die. Now walk as children of light so that others might have their need for Jesus exposed. Not so that they would be left in a place where they're feeling hopeless and guilt-ridden by that, but that they would then reach out to receive the grace of Jesus Christ for themselves. That's the purpose. We want people to be seeing their need for Jesus, not to make them feel bad about their lives, but to face up to the reality of their sin, but in the hope that they can reach out to the grace of God and receive the same salvation that we have when we place our faith in him. See, our salvation isn't just a gift for us. It's intended to be lived. That's why you see this amazing quote in verse 14 where it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This was a call to the church to wake up. It was a call to the church to kick into gear, to to get moving, to be different, to walk a pure and different walk so that through their walk, Christ would shine on them and through them into the lives of the communities in which God had placed them so that those communities would see that light of Jesus and they would want to reach out and grab hold of it themselves. In Matthew 5, 14 to 16, it says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. It's like the beacon turns on. Everything is exposed for what it is. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds or fruit, whatever terminology you want to use, good deeds, and glorify God in heaven. 
The point is to see people glorifying God. When we let Jesus determine our walk, when we let him change our walk, we shine the light and love of Jesus into the lives of those around us. How might God be wanting the truth of our salvation to be evident in the way we live? To start not just being children of life, but living as children of light. In what ways might God be calling us as a church to wake up? To wake up and be a light into our community. To not just fall in the trap of going through Christian motions. But by laying down our lives before Christ and saying, I want you to shine through us all the more so that I can be a light of hope in the people around us. So they might have hope where they otherwise would not have any hope. So they might have life whereas otherwise they would have no life. My prayer is that as a church, we would not just focus on drawing ourselves away from sin, although that's important, but his salvation would be so evident in our lives and our ministries here that the people around us, the community around us, couldn't help but see their desperate need for Jesus so that they would reach out and receive his saving grace. Now, in light of all that, Paul then moves on to a glorifying walk. And he does this by starting the section in verse 15 and 16 about encouraging the church to examine its walk. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Now, the idea of looking carefully at something refers to turning your eyes on something diligently, carefully examining it, putting it under the microscope, so to speak. How many husbands out there have been told to look at something with female eyes? You know, every now and again, I fall in the trap of trying to help Mel out in the kitchen, and there's a conversation that often goes along these lines. Could you just grab the flour for me? Yeah, sure, no worries. Head over to the pantry. Has a quick look. Sorry, we're out of flour. No, 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 it's just behind a couple of things. I bought some of the other day. Moved a few things to the left or right. Quick glance. No, no, it's not there. It's okay, though. I'll go to the IJ and I'll, I'll be back before you need it. Footsteps. Mel arrives at the pantry, moves a few things to the right and left. Hey, presto, flower. It was there all the time. Just needed to look with female eyes, right? We're so used to skimming or glancing at things rather than looking at something intently and carefully and really assessing and pulling something apart. But when we apply the same superficial assessment to our own walk with God, we can easily develop a false sense of where we are really at. Paul urges the church to take the time to carefully think about and assess and examine their walk with God. To be willing to ask the tough questions. God, where are we really at? It's not a long question, but it's a tough question. God, are you Lord of every aspect of my life? God, what areas of my walk do I need to lay before you? You know, these are tough questions, but they really get asked because we're not used to having to carefully examine our own relationship with God. But then Paul tells us why we're doing this. He gives us the motivation for it. 
He gives us a reason. He says, do this because we need to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, the concept of the time here is not time in a general sense. It's not talking about every, using, making the best use of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of the rest of your life. Because that brings this issue down to a time management issue. It's not that. The concept of the time is referring to a specific period of time. It's a recognition here that we are in a unique window of opportunity. We are in a unique season. The kingdom has come in the form of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in his people, but it's not yet come in full, has it? The church is being built by Jesus on the day where it will reach its fulfillment. The days are evil now and that sin is still present amongst us, but the, the, the time is limited because Jesus will come again, amen? And he will make all of the wrongs right. And he will bring to completion the work through which he is starting in his church and has already started. So the call here is to recognize that we are in a unique and defined window of opportunity. So he says, examine your walk because we want to make the best of this window of opportunity that we have. We want to use it for kingdom work. We want to use it for eternal work. We want to examine and lay our lives down because this season of opportunity will not last forever. So how do we use this unique time and this season that we've been granted? Well, we use it for his glory, don't we? And we get a picture of that in verses 17 to 20. Now, we could get caught up in the do's and don'ts of this section. You know, we could get tied up in foolishness or what it means about drinking or what it means in terms of debauchery, but I want us to stay focused on the bigger picture here, of the picture of a church which Paul is trying to paint through these verses. And that bigger picture that's being painted here is of a church who wants to draw near to God and worship him. You can see that clearly in the language here. Paul is describing a church that it wants to discern and understand the will of God. A church who wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit, connected to God through the work and power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Their walk was to be a walk which was focused on drawing near to God and surrendering to him, being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that Holy Spirit can transform that church into the creation God intends it to be. But not only is there a call to draw near to God in these verses, there's a call to worship. Their, their hearts are so clearly filled with songs of praise for their almighty God. They're described as singing psalms and worship songs to each other, making melodies to the Lord, and they're giving thanks always and forever in all things to God the Father in the name of Jesus. When you read and reflect on this picture, you see a picture of a church which wants to draw near to God and worship him alone. And you think about it and you go, man, I need that sort of fire and passion and purpose in my heart. That passion to be constantly drawing near to God through his spirit and worshipping him always in all circumstances. That is a God-glorifying walk. And that is making the best use of the time. Because as if God won't honour that in return. As if Christ won't shine through that walk in a way he may never have shone before. And we need to remember, though, that 
We can't just manufacture that kind of walk. You can't just create it. It's not like you just put, draw near to God and worship him as a daily calendar reminder in your phone and expect it to kind of just happen. This all flows out of knowing the light, doesn't it? We will never be able to walk as children of light unless we know the light. It's when we know him more and more. And when we love him more and more. And when we appreciate the salvation we have through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we appreciate that salvation more and more, it's only then that things start to change. That an impure walk can become a redeemed walk. That a fruitless walk can become a fruit-filled walk and a witness into those around us. And a distant and isolated walk can be a walk which is in communion with God and which is filled with worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how this passage now starts to hang together? The truths you can see coming through in this last section is that God is most glorified in our walk when our hearts are to know and worship him. God is most glorified in our walk when our hearts are to know and worship him. What are the desires of your heart this morning? How might we each need to take the time to step back and openly and honestly assess our relationship with God? To ask ourselves whether our walk is reflecting a desire to know and worship him in a deeper way or if our walk may be one which has lost that passion and purpose. For God wants us to use this time and season to its absolute best, for kingdom work, for eternal work, so that God might build his church through our desire to know and worship him. As I said at the start, salvation isn't a gift that's just to be received. It's a gift that's intended to be lived. May the salvation of God be ever more evident in the way we live. May he give us victory over impurity or any other sin that might have hold over our life. May he cause us to shine like a beacon into the lives and communities around us. And may he fill us with a passion to draw near to him and worship him forevermore. May we be a church that doesn't just preach salvation, but lives it, making the best use of the time for the glory and honour of our almighty God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are the light. Lord, we thank you that by the grace of Jesus on the cross, the penalty and, and consequences of our sin were endured by him on the cross so that we might experience salvation when we place our faith in him and lord we thank you that that salvation is 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 a gift that we received but it's also a gift that we can live out so that you can deliver us from any form of impurity so that you can change our walk so that we might shine like a light into the lives of those around us and so that we might be filled with a newfound passion to draw near to you above all other things and worship you in all circumstances. Lord, may we individually and collectively as a church glorify you through the way we live, through the way our salvation is expressed 
in the change that people see as we seek to live lives that are good and right and true in the power of the Holy Spirit that we have by your grace. Lord, may the light of your love be so evident in our hearts. It just overflows in the lives of those around us too. Lord, we pray this as a church. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.